Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Micah Christensen, welcome back to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you. It is good to be back to this dimension of this view <laughs> way, this, this world that you've created that is kind of a paradise for artists and art historians. I love it. I like that, the Undraped Artist Dimension. <laughs> so, hey, it's funny because today you, well, I'm sort of spoiling it here, but you're talking about Ruben today, right? Ruben's. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you heard last week, but we had on Adam Miller. Are you familiar with his work? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, check this out. Sorry, Adam. Check this. <laughs> well, you're going to love it. You're going to love this guy. But uh, he is a huge, he's in Italy right now. He's originally from Oregon. And Oh, uh, I've seen his work. I yeah, know who you're talking about. But he's a big time Rubens fan. And we talked quite a bit about oh, yeah. it during, yeah. Can You can see the influence, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's, nuts. I think that Rubens is somebody who gets really unfairly uh, uh, pinned down as being the fat women painter in our generation <laughs> and has been for about a hundred years. Yeah. And it doesn't do justice to him. He was one of perhaps and arguably along with Raphael, the most influential painter in the history of Western art. Hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about how influential it was in his own generation, but he there's a there's a phrase that's used over and over again in his own lifetime and afterwards that was calling him the prince of painters and the painter of princes hmm. and that's an acknowledgement that in his lifetime he transcended not only um multiple nationalities he was somebody who was a kind of artist diplomat who um was very comfortable. I mean, he spoke um, Dutch, German, Flemish, Latin, Greek, Spanish, French, Italian, English. I mean, that's nine languages that I can name that he spoke. And he was somebody who was educated, um, which was not always the case for artists who were considered artisans or craftspeople. And he, um, in a world that was heavily um, uh, um, put into categories of class where you had artisans that did not associate with people who were royalty. He was considered almost equal with nobility in his own lifetime. So he was somebody who was comfortable um, in multiple languages, mo multiple nationalities, and multiple levels of class. We'll talk a little bit about his biography as we go along. But I think what we'll find at the end is that this this very narrow view we have of Rubens, or at least some people have, of him being the painter of uh, chubby people, which, you know, there is some truth to that, that he did paint people, he had his own aesthetic, um, is also a too narrow of a view to describe 
how dynamic of a of a person and of a painter he was. Um, there's no way in one podcast that we're going to be able to cover all of Ruben's career. But what I've done today is given a little bit of the journey of Ruben's life with the images we've chosen. Okay. And a little bit of the 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 um, the influence that he had on others. So too. let me ask you a so, question before we get into the images. Yeah. You know you. You say he was known as the chubby painter. Obviously, you're you're half joking, but there is something to that. And and yeah. but was that really his thing, or was that a thing of the time? Well, let's pull up the the um, the first image that I've got there. Okay. So if you're looking at this image, this is what we think of when we think of Rubens, right? It's it's uh, it's uh, this is the three graces. Um, they are portraits of, of uh, women of his own time, and they are deliberately um, a little, you know, they, they, they've, got, they've got some meat on their bones, right? And there's some exaggeration to the form deliberately. This is something that he was known for doing. And I think that it's funny. Um, if you had to describe why he painted this way, and was he the only one who painted this way, he definitely wasn't. This was an aesthetic that came from um, the the, the uh, Netherlands, where he had as his base. And so Jacob Jordans, the Bruegels, and others did these kind of um, uh, uh, full figures that were... Um, uh, deliberately very pink and deliberately a little chunky. And mm -hmm. the way that it's been described to me as an art historian, I don't think it's a satisfying explanation, was that Rubens lived in a time of real turmoil and war. There was a war going on with Spain in the Netherlands, and there was one going on with France, and that spread into almost every country in Europe. Um, it pulled in England, it pulled in parts of Italy and the, the Pope. It was kind of Catholic versus Protestants is the easiest way to think of it. And there was a lot of want and a lot of starvation as a result of it. And um, what was highly prized among people was people who was a sign of wealth was being well fed and plump. Hmm. And so there was an aesthetic of wanting people in your images that looked like that, because that was also the aesthetic that was favored in the way people dressed and went about. They showed their plumpness. I guess you could say that, you know, if you look at hip hop videos, there's a certain body type that is prized mm -hmm. versus the kind of body that's prized on a runway. Which one is the correct answer? There isn't a correct answer. It's just an, an an accepted and desired aesthetic among, you know, those different, those different audiences, right? Yeah. Do you think it was, um, do you think it was a general taste in women at the time? Or do you think it was more reflection of appreciating the a wealthier class? In other words, was well, it sexual I... or was it just class-based? I, I think that's an interesting way of phrasing it, and I don't think it's a wrong way to phrase it. You know, we think of ourselves as being very international now. Um, and we think of ourselves as really, since the onset of, of uh, 
the turn of the century when boats and and then later planes could take us everywhere very quickly that we are part of the first generation that people were vacationing in one part of the world and living in another part of the world mm-hmm. well we weren't ruben's generation was ruben's generation initiated what was called the grand tour where you were expected to travel if you lived in england to italy and where all of the nobility spoke Latin or French or or Spanish during his lifetime. And so there was a there was if you lived in the Netherlands or in France or in Italy or in Spain, there was a shared aesthetic of what you look like being wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that this is what wealth and class look like and the taste of the wealthy and class, uh, the, the upper class. And that's an aesthetic that was helped established by Rubens. Whether it originated by him, from him, that is, is another question that I don't know the answer to, but I do know that he spread it. Hmm. But I do want to say, and we'll see more of this, that while this is part of Rubens' aesthetic, um, if you go to the first image, the first image is really an example of what made Rubens such a popular painter. This is this is such a great image. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So during his lifetime, um, Rubens was known as being theatrical and dramatic. And this is at a time when theater was big, but there are no movies. There's no there's no um Zack Snyder Transformer movies or horror movies at the time like we're used to, where you see these things so graphically depicted. Imagine this being shown by candlelight and the light is flickering on her eyes and on the snakes and lizards and the blood that's coming out of her neck. And this is this is the kind of I think this painting was originally behind a curtain and it was a dinner party trick where right. he painted it for the uh, Duke of Mantua, I believe. And the Duke would have dinner and then everybody would retire to another room where there were drinks and there would be candles on either side of it. And he would, he would open the curtains and everybody would gasp looking at it because it was such a shocking image. Are you right? serious? And, and, yeah. And that's the, I mean, that's the kind of thing that um, Rubens I mean, this isn't this isn't a, a, a chubby woman. This is a ghastly scene. The, the, just to give you context of what the scene is, the idea is that, um, uh, oh, who cuts off the head of the Medusa, the Gorgon? Perseus. So Perseus um, is given the tax, task of uh, cutting off the of killing the Gorgon. And um, she has various heads, and the idea is that her looking in her eyes turns anyone to stone. So he gets a polished shield and um, shines her view back at her, turns her head to stone, cuts off her head, and out of her neck springs the the Pegasus horse. He quickly puts her head, which is made of snakes, into a bag and then gets on the Pegasus and becomes a kind of hero, taking her head out of the bag whenever he needs to, to freeze his enemies on his ongoing adventures. So what Rubens has done 
is he's isolated just the head with the bag next to it. That's what that little mm-hmm. um, little bit of uh, a fabric is right here. Yeah. And and the idea is that you like imagine the curtain parts and and the Duke of Mantua says, "Whatever you do, don't look into her eyes. You'll be turned to stone." Kind of as a party trick. Yeah. Right? This it is looks very real. It's so real. These snakes are amazing. Like, look at this one Aren't down here. It's incredible yeah. detail. But then there incredible are such weird detail. elements to it. Snake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This snake right I here mean, that no looks like the Loch Ness really monster like coming in and out of the water, you know? It's just the weirdest the pose great... for a snake. This is one of the great things about Rubens is that Rubens um, doesn't care about reality that much. Yeah. He cares about dynamism and composition and about fantasy. And and that's very true of the artists of his generation and more him than others, is that there are a lot of moments in this that are beautifully observable of what these things look like. But he deliberately bends things to make them fantastic and imaginative and dramatic. And right? bizarre. So it's it's and you, when else would you want to make something look a snake do something like that other than when you're painting a totally crazy image of a person who's supposed to have her hair made up of these fig- things right i mean it's not supposed to be reality it's not supposed to look real but there's a bit of reality to it he's got spiders coming out and scorpions and like even this this like landscape what on earth is the landscape that she's in it doesn't make any sense but it works like this is yeah. Rubens to a T it's drama it's fantasy it's 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 so much fun to look at you can't help but smile and also gag a little bit when you look at the image it's fabulous he would have been an incredible horror film director I mean because I keep oh, I can't man. look away from this snake imagine this in a horror film and a snake gets up on edge like this and starts doing this weird anti-gravity crawl yeah. That would be so yeah. freaky. How did he come up with that? It's like okay, mind-blowing. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Ruben's biography, okay? Because I think that Ruben's biography, I mean, he deserves a little bit of, of, uh, of, an, of an attention, attention about who he was and where he came from. So Ruben's is born in Germany to a, a, a fair a fairly um, educated and wealthy family. His father is an assistant to one of the leaders of the Netherlands. And the Netherlands is kind of divided into two areas. It's divided into um, the upper part, kind of like today, that is largely Protestant and the lower part, which is largely Catholic. And there was a, and the Catholic part was ruled by Spain and there was an attempt of the all of its ruled by Spain, and the upper part is trying to break away. So his family's caught in the middle of this. They're Catholic, but they have a lot of Protestant friends. And um, there's also a real education revolution going on and an immigration revolution. So the Netherlands becomes a gathering place for all of the people who are Protestant that are educated that have fled other Catholic territories, people who have fled Spain, who have fled England, who have fled um, France, who have fled parts of Germany, and the printing press is uh, is 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 happening. So Rubens grows up speaking um, 
multiple languages because he's in the Netherlands. And even today, if you're born in the Netherlands, you usually speak at least Flemish, French, Dutch, German, right? Mm. But because of the printing revolution in an educated family, he also learns Latin and Greek as a boy. So he's hyper-educated. His hmm. father becomes the assistant to one of the leaders and um, has an affair with his his employer's wife and has a child. And um, the family has to flee to um, uh, Antwerp, sorry, Amsterdam. So at age 10, he goes to Amsterdam Dam, and he gets um, what would be considered potentially a demotion. Um, he can't really work with the nobility um, because his father's been ousted and mm. even jailed for a time. So he takes the lowly position of working in a painter's um, studio. Really? And yeah, and Rubens, um, and this is back when there are, there are kind of schools for being an artist, but really you're living in a hybrid world where you really are more of an apprentice to a master and you're living with that master and your job is to paint like that master, not to get a general education, but to kind of paint like that artist. Mm -hmm. So he works with a kind of, you know, not a big deal artist. And the the artist gives him his first tasks to copy um, prints by Albrecht Durer and other print artists, which isn't a bad education because you're learning composition, right? You're learning perspective. You're learning... You're, 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 and a lot of those things are illustrations for books. So you're reading the books too, if, if you're him, because you're educated. So he's, he's getting an education in the kind of popular um, art of his time. And Albrecht Durer is a killer artist, right? So he's, he's learning Albrecht Durer's craft. Mm -hmm. Then Ruben's elder brother gets a, a job. They're Catholic, remember? His brother gets a job to be trained as a doctor of the church in the Vatican. Now, being a doctor of the church in the Vatican, then and now, doesn't mean being a medical doctor. It means being a legal scholar of church law. Hmm. So his brother was an elite, educated Catholic. And Rubens follows him and goes, and I think it's for 10 years... He's kind of living off of his brother's salary in Rome. Now go to the next image we've got. One more. While he's in Rome, this is a time when Caravaggio, Poussin, um, the um, Genelleschis, all of these artists, are, are Bernini, are making these great works of art. And because of his brother's status as a church elite um, intellectual, Rubens has access to the sculptures that these people are collecting and the art that is being commissioned from the Caravaggios, the Berninis of the world. Hmm. And we have a lot of the drawings that, that uh, Rubens did at this time. He's going and he's copying things like, this is the Spinaro that was done, I think, at 100 AD. Go to the next image. And this is Rubens, you know, own imaginative drawing of it. And notice huh. it isn't a copy. This is him elaborating on it and making it more lifelike. 
Interesting. He I don't know if it's more lifelike. It seems characteresque. This seems more You're natural. Right, that's a good question. This seems more naturalistic to me. The sculpture does, but I, I can see what you mean. He's really trying to flesh out the anatomy. He seemed to be obsessed with anatomy. He does, and and I think he's you know on his way down to be with his brother, he passes through Venice and he runs into. He sees the work of Titian, of Veronese, of Tintoretto, of all of the greats that are there. And and then he he comes to, to Rome and he sees all of the greats that are in Rome, and he sees Michelangelo. And to me, this is kind of like a a version of the musculature of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. Like there's a there's a kind of an exaggeration of muscle. I don't know exactly what you call it, but I I mean for one thing, I love that on the left he's got the head turning to some viewer, and on the right he's got the Spin the figure looking down at the at his foot while he's trying to pull out the the thorn yeah right? and he's it's got a really... rag like he's wiping his foot on the left and he's yeah pulling out a thorn on the right it's he's not just copying it's it's like he's playing around with narratives too yeah yeah and he does this from a very young age and this isn't the next work isn't um is a is an ancient sculpture that he sees when he's in Rome. And you see how you got that figure on the left with a lance that's hitting, uh, uh, that's killing a boar. And remember, this is a, this is a sculpture that was um, ancient and it was, um, it's, it's a, it's a ball relief. It's all like along one plane, right? Mm -hmm. And so the narrative is really constructed by the idea that all the action is happening on one plane. Well, Rubens took notes of this and many years later did his own painting where he borrowed imagery from it. So go to the next image. What? And you see that he's, you know, he's, he's taking this, this, uh, this very flat imagery and he's, he borrows from it to make his own kind of imagery later in life. So huh. you, Ru Rubens, Rubens has this really remarkable gift of, of synthesizing art from all kinds of genres and all kinds of eras and making them his own. And one of the, he didn't just do that for his own sake, but you gotta think that his patrons are obsessed with classical sculpture. They've got their own classical sculpture collections and they would have known what he was borrowing from for his paintings. And that was part of the delight of having a Rubens is that Rubens was, was taking your classical sculptures and updating them into a format that was modern and exciting and lifelike hmm. and dynamic. Right. So, so Rubens is really doing these, these remarkable, um, yeah, just to say that he's painting fat people, you know, and, and not realizing that he's got this level of education and this depth of knowledge that he's then transmuting into other forms for patrons that are highly educated, that are demand, that want that from him. And that's part of what makes him famous in his own lifetime is that most artists aren't even literate. You know, 90% of artists, artists can't even sign their own name. And Rubens shows up. He's the son of a of, of an educated fam, uh, uh, family, 
he grows up speaking multiple languages, including ancient languages. He understands the literature of his time. He understands the ancient past, and he can speak to you and to your interests because that's what you aspire to do too. Kind of makes him an oddball because that means that you're now talking with somebody who is, you know, he's he's the total package, and you want to be a little bit like Rubens, even though he's below your station. Hmm. You know, that's you wild. want to be him. So he's in Rome working uh, kind of on his self-education course, occasionally doing portraits here and there. And then he gets a job with the Duke of Mantua. Now, Mantua, you have to think of Italy as being not a single country, which happens in the 1870s. He's there, you know, 250 years before that. Um, and it's a series of principalities run by different people and the the the, the uh, duchy of mantua is this very small but wealthy town and it doesn't have a, a a lot of power militarily speaking but it has diplomatic influence it's kind of the monaco of of the uh of of, of the world of its time and a lot of wealthy people like to visit there because the man who the duke of mantua um, was known for his great taste and gathered a court of artists around him that were very talented. And one of the main jobs of an artist at the time was to um, do portraits for um, to to uh, for two reasons. One was to um, show off how powerful and good looking and tasteful you were. So you'd hire an artist who would then send out your portrait to other leaders as a diplomatic gift. And then there were also portraits that were done for marriage reasons, because a big part of your job being royalty is to continue your line or to make powerful alliances. And so Ruben's job was to work to do two things. One was to make portraits of the Duke of Mantua and of his children to get good um, marriage alliances. But then there was a third job that the Duke of Mantua kind of took on as an interesting job. In the, 19, in the uh, 17th century, there was such a fervor for collecting great works of art by people like Rubens. It's not, not by Rubens. I mean, Caravaggio, Titian, mainly Titian, Veronese, Raphael, um, classics by their time that were sometimes, you know, 30, sometimes 100 years old. That um, there was no such thing as copyright and there was no differentiation between the value of the original work by the artist and a work that was done that was a copy of it. And really? Rubens' job was... Yeah, there was there was just like no distinction, but credit so was wait, given so to the Ruben artist. So wait, so Ruben could for... go literally copy exactly a Caravaggio and sell it as though it were, or and and it would have the same value as an original Caravaggio. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was basically that was basically true. Wow. And so um, there's a little nuance to it, but that was basically true. So the Duke of Mantua wanted a good copyist. For four years, Ruben's job was to copy great masterworks and give them as diplomatic gifts to people that the Duke of Mantua wanted to give them to. So Rubens had another level of education where the Duke of Mantua, who has a great collection, is copying, is causing Rubens as his job to copy other great works of art to give away his gifts. So Rubens now in his late 20s, um, and he's his job is to 
be a, mu a, a museum copyist for, for four years. Hmm. And he's... He got like if you think about the layers of education he has at this point, the first layer is as a you know about ten years old, little older, he's doing print copies. Then he moves with his brother to Rome and he's copying statues and other works of art. We also have image we also have from his sketchbook, he's copying pigeons flying in St. Peter's Square. Huh. As he's he's got a huge range of interests from the classics to real life. And then he works for the Duke of Mantua and he's copying contemporary and old master paintings and doing portraiture. So, okay, here before you like, go too far on, I want to, I just want to get a clarification here just so I understand the history. So earlier yeah. you had said that people wanted to be like him, even though he was below their station. Yeah. And, and then you're describing this culture as being one that, values it seems to me like they value the painting and not the artist that painted it because if he could copy a caravaggio and and essentially it has the same value as an original caravaggio then the people of the time must not have given two cents about caravaggio and they just cared about the work of caravaggio not so much the artist himself well i mean there is a little bit of a difference and the difference would be that Everybody knew it was by Caravaggio, and they they thought of him as the idea as being his. Okay. They didn't think of the idea as being Rubens. And so they looked at it as being like, here's this genius Raphael. And um and and uh, they didn't really they didn't differentiate between something that was actually done by Raphael and a copy of Raphael because the idea was still Raphael's. It's very foreign to us. We so they're don't interested in, in concept. They're interested in concept and craftsmanship, but not necessarily this like historical souvenir that the artist actually touched something. That's, that's a good way of summarizing it. And I know it's, it is a foreign idea even to me. I'm 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 trying to articulate it even though I live in a world where we we value the original item as being more important than any copy. Yeah. But um you know another way if you were Russian or Eastern Orthodox one way to think of this would be that they regularly replace the icons in those churches with new ones even like ones that are sometimes you know, not nearly as good or as old as the uh, original one because it just needs to be updated and refreshed. And who cares about the old one? Because the the we just want it to be in good shape, right? Like that's. I mean, and there's some there's some reason. I mean, that that's not entirely irrational. I mean, it, it's it's yeah. funny. We are sentimental creatures, even even to the point that we do we are we become sort of irrational. We're so sentimental. We would have an old worn out church just to yeah. preserve the old when we could have so much better something that functions better something that's more beautiful um there's now, something to that there is something to that but i mean i i would be the sentimental type i would i would want the old myself too. but i guess i could see both sides of it that's it's just yeah it is how interesting how different people used to think it's very different so let's what happens in 1603 is important. 1604. No, 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 no. I'm wrong. 
He starts in 1604, 1608. He gets news that his mother, who is in in the Netherlands, is dying. So he leaves the Duke of Mantua, and he goes back home to Antwerp and Amsterdam. This episode is brought to you in part by Rosemary Brushes. If you're one of my listeners who's a professional artist, you're already using Rosemary Brushes. But for the rest of you, come on, take your work a little more seriously. Stop buying the other brands. It's just not worth it. Every now and then you may get lucky and buy a good brush from another brand, but use the brand that professionals like myself are using. Go to rosemaryandco.com, link in the description or the show notes, and get yourself some quality brushes before your next painting. So go to the next image. Okay. This is um, another stage of his life. One of the, so he's, he goes back at a time when there's been war with, with uh, the Protestants versus the Catholics. And you have to think of it as kind of a, a real plant the flag problem. What happens is, is that the Protestants get territory and they take over the Catholic churches. They burn all the statues. They take out all the stained glass. They make, they whitewash the walls and they get rid of all of the idolatrous Catholic interiors. And then a couple years later, the Catholics take back the church and hire artists to repopulate it with statues, altarpieces, paintings, and stained glass. Hmm. And Rubens shows up in 1609. And remember, he's been working kind of as a solo artist all this time and now the wealthy who he shows up in in the netherlands at a time of war and he is one of the maybe the only artist who's really traveled to italy and copied the old masters and worked with the elite in italy where italy is the the home of taste right imagine that you're the only cook who shows up in a small town who's worked with french chefs Right. And now you show up in town everybody wants you to open up a restaurant and they'll pay for it. Right. That's what happens with Rubens. Is he shows up in the Netherlands and almost overnight he gets a workshop of 25, then 50, then 100. And then I think eventually 300 workers, artists who are working underneath them. Holy and they're moly. making they're making altarpieces. They're making tapestries. They're making um uh murals and they're all doing it under rubens who's now 30 to 33 years old under his supervision and this altarpiece is one of the first pieces he makes and is really rubens mature um mid like style in his 30s go to the next image and you get an idea of the scale of it wow that is so right? cool it's what would you so say cool, that's maybe it? i mean 10 feet no, that's got to be 12 feet tall or something. Yeah, it's like it's like 12 feet tall, and um, it's the altarpiece for the Catholic Church. Man. Uh, oh. So, and, and, and I mean, these are huge pieces, and they're complicated multifigural scenes, right? So, I mean, if you go back to the, uh, to the image we were looking at before, um, this doesn't do it justice. There's not really a great um, image of this um, that shows the detail, but, I mean... 
just look at it from a compositional perspective of you've got multiple figures, but you want to draw the viewer's eye across the whole scene, right? You've got the central figure of Christ, which is in the brightest light with the most and the darkest light, kind of the most drama. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot kind of, of contrast figure, here. Huge contrasted figure. And his his um the the cross is being erected at this moment, right? And you want to show the movement and the drama of it. It looks like almost a theatrical scene, right? Of these muscular figures that are pulling up Christ's figure as he's being crucified. And um it's you've got people reacting to it in the crowd. You've got family on the left, you've got on the right, the um, the the soldiers who are who are uh, helping with their horse. I mean, it's a very dramatic scene. But if you had to count the figures in this, let me see if I did it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty figures that I count. Mm. And um. That's not including the horses Man. and the dog and yeah, it's and and look at how he's used color. Look at he's got the how he's used red, how he's used um, and this image doesn't do a good. This image is a little washed out. If you go to the other image, which is I think kind of a a, a cleaned version oh, of yeah, it. That's look at how bright that is bright. Look at how bright it is. I mean, it's just a wow. beautiful. Yeah, this is a bad image. It's it's hard to find a good image of it. Because it's in a church, wow. right? I mean, yeah. and, and it's it's kind of washed out by by the natural light there. But I, I, it is, and look at how those figures are right at the edge of the painting too. That one that's got the blue cloth around his waist looks yeah. like he's about to fall out of the painting. God, that must be incredible it's, to see in person. Have you been here? I have, and it is it is it is incredible, and it makes you feel. It feels so dramatic. You've feel the stress on the muscles you feel like christ is being erected in front of you on the cross it's it's really it, it's 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 crazy the drama that he's able to create and back to our previous conversation i just don't get it i mean standing in front of this just would would be almost spiritual bringing back hundreds of years to reuben's time and and then yeah. and we think of these people that were just like yeah well let's just get this repainted and and update the church. I mean like I just don't get yeah. And <laughs> and you know another thing to re to remember with him is that he's coming off a generation that is you know a lot of these churches were full of very still contemplative works mm -hmm. a figure standing still that you would look at and meditate on. And, um, you know, almost like a Velasquez crucifixion, if you're supposed to think of it quietly, and it's not dramatic in the way that this is dramatic. This is dramatic movement. It's a dynamic piece. It's, it's, the, it's the difference between going to a movie where, where everything is very still and quiet and thoughtful and the dialogue is spoken and every word matters versus an action movie right right this well, was the is work more iconic movie. that preceded this work 
I don't know if it was more iconic or just a huge contrast in the church in the mm. area where he was painting. He was deliberately contrasting. His style was, you know, you, you get Rubens and you get theater. You yeah, get dyna yeah. dynamism. So, it, but this isn't the story alone because he's also, the Netherlands is full of wealth. You, the Dutch East India Company is is controlling the seas and commerce between the... Um, China, India, Japan, and and the New World and uh, and uh, Europe. There's a lot of money, a lot of merchants. There's a lot of. He's not just doing church commissions and has this huge workshop that's doing major churches. He's doing a lot of private residence work. And if you go to the next image, Michael, can I ask? He's not doing. Can I ask if you know what an artist would have been paid for something like this. I don't like know this. the exact amount, but I'm sure we have the contract because his his life is very well documented and he was paid very well. He made really? a lot of money. Really? He was he was he had he was making a lot of money. Hmm. So this image is of um Prometheus. If you remember the story Prometheus disobeyed the will of Zeus and taught men how to make fire and and a lot of other things and for disobeying Zeus by teaching humans godlike knowledge he was taken to the scythian mountains and um chained with adamantine chains that he couldn't break and every day his liver was eaten out by an eagle and mm -hmm. it was this was a famous painting among the uh the nobility and wealthy and the kings of reuben's day because it was a if you disobey me as your lord you will be punished painting and mm. the interesting thing about this is that Rubens only painted the figure. This was a collaboration collaboration between Rubens and Franz Snyders. And Snyders was the main artist, and Rubens came in and just painted the figure where Snyders wanted him to paint it. No there was kidding. a real Was era. Snyders not qualified no, 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 to no. do a figure of this quality? Well, you know, there was a real specialization in the Netherlands at this time that artists worked all the time in collaboration so if you go to the next image the next image is a very a small painting that's roughly kind of like you know 15 by 30 and rubens did the figures in um on the left and some of the ones in the paintings but this is a part of series of four paintings by bruegel jan bruegel and they were these are in the prado and they were commissioned by the king of spain to describe the four senses so Rubens helped on all four of the faint paintings. This is just the sense of sight. And so all these instruments and all of these paintings and all the sculptures have to do with sight. So mm. like Bruegel and his workshop did everything but the figures. And what's really funny is on the far right, that painting of the Madonna and child surrounded by wreath. Mm -hmm. That's a real painting that Rubens and Bruegel did together in another job where Rubens did the figures and Snyder's did, I'm sorry, and uh, Bruegel did the, the wreath. In the back on the top, Rubens repainted in this painting his own painting, which we'll see later. And I mean, like, all of these are like, and they're also copying masterpieces by other artists. It was really like, it, it was funny this time because what Rubens would do is he would show up to do his part in the painting. And he did this all the time. And so were they Bruegel, commissioned by somebody 
with an agreement that different artists would do it in order to create a superior yeah. product or were the artists just particularly cooperative? It was both. In this case, um, the King of Spain wanted Rubens to do the figures and everything else to be done by Bruegel. What? And so, so that was part of the contract. So Man, you, times you've have got changed. This, isn't it crazy? I mean, it's just a really, it's, I mean, Rubens is living in this world where he kind of shows up as the superstar for his part, but he also has immense respect and relationships with his friends who are artists. And sometimes he brings them into his projects. That is wild. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting, the connection. His paintings are really theatrical and yeah. his manner of working is theatrical. It's like he just comes in for his part in the play and then yeah. leaves and everyone claps. It's like, <laughs> but then the play goes on. And you know, he was tall, he was charming, he was handsome. He was, um, he was married and had children and was ex intensely loyal to, to them and painted them often. He was kind of this ideal figure. He was very worldly, but he was very religious. Um, he was very friendly with other artists. He wasn't, um, he was theatrical, but he wasn't um, zealous or, or he didn't brag or, or, or criticize other artists. He was just a very, he was a very um, generous, collaborative person to work with. Um, and that goes to his studio practice. So let's go go to this these next this next image. Now you're gonna wonder what is going on here, right? I mean, like it's just a study, right? It's a study, and and this and the next image, we can go back and forth between the two of them, are very typical of this mature stage we're in. He he had a practice where he would go to the studio, and remember he's got like between 50 and 300 people working for him, depending on the project he's working on. And they would have these oak boards, which were all the same size, oak panels. They're all the same size. And they would say, okay, this painting, for instance, man, is, is the, the title of this painting is The Meeting of King Ferdinand of Hungary and the Cardinal Infante Ferdinand of Spain at Nordlingen. Wait, that's Which all the title? That's the title of this piece. And it was part of a series that he was meant to do for um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, for King Ferdinand of Hungary, commemorating important moments in the King of Hungary's life. Remember, he's, the, he's, he's being commissioned all over to do all kinds of projects. And some of these things show up as paintings and some of them show up as tapestries. So what Rubens does is he gets to his studio They've got, they say to him, okay, Rubens, for King Ferdinand's job, um, job, we need to do 16 panels of his life. And we kind of think that maybe the best way to do it is to mix it with this mythological figure and to have these, these moments in his life as part of this series of 12, 15, 20 paintings we, he's commissioned for us to do. So, you know, what we'd like you to do is do a basic sketch for us. So Rubens would sit there with, three, four colors, maybe five. And he would sketch out while, by the way, he would have, he had a hired narrator whose job it was to read from the classics or to play music while he worked or both. What? 
and and he would um he would sit with the notes of what he was supposed to paint and he would paint sometimes four or five of these in a day um and then they would be handed off to the workshop to work into final paintings and they would get most of the like 90% of the painting done and he would come in and finish the faces finish the hands tighten it up at the end or if it was a tapestry he would just oversee the final tapestry as it was being woven to make sure that it was the way that he wanted it to be done but a huge part of his output during this time of from like his his 30s onward was him doing thousands of these 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 kind of like four and five color um uh um grisailles for lack of a better term that that mm. were um sketches for his workshop to do okay i have a couple um, questions and, for you so did yeah yeah first of all do you know anything about his process i mean it seems to me that these would have been done from his imagination then when they go back to the workshop i would assume that the they'd be transferred to a larger canvas by his assistants but then mm -hmm. what is he bringing in live models is he working from sculptures is he working from other paintings i think it's a real mix i think that there's he definitely uses models and costumes and he's got historical references so often what will happen is if he's working with king ferdinand and he's got to show king ferdinand in his armor the armor is sent to rubens oh, okay. to work from and he'll have somebody stand in that armor right mm. on this stage um he's working with a mix i mean but but if you had to say like what is rubens comfortable with he's way more comfortable with imagination than we are today yeah right he is he's really i mean go back to that christ um calling the fisherman piece that um oh Greta, it's uh go go back um one more there you are um you know he's probably not on the shore of anything painting this He's probably got people who he's got posing in a makeshift kind of like boat thing that he's got, but he's kind of sketched it out first as a composition usually, and then makes people pose after he's sketched it out. Right. That's how I understand it. Right. Yeah, that's right? what I would have thought. And then, and then he, um, then he will sub subserviate. I can't think of the right word. The, um, the final work to whatever looks best for the composition and the the colors more than working from real life so real figures will figure into it but the final work is more of a harmonization of values colors and dynamism that work just as an image rather than a reflecting real life yeah you've got to hear this adam miller podcast because he i feel like Adam Miller has really got it figured out. The way he described it is he'll do it from imagination. No, Adam will, not, not necessarily Rubens, yeah. but, but then he likes what he does with the weirdness of the imaginative figures, the elongated torsos and necks and so on and so forth, larger hips, whatever. And then he brings in a live model and he sort of forces that live model into the shape of yeah. his imagined model and yeah. but he uses the live model as as a light logic reference so that he can really understand how light would move across the form 
while at the same time changing the shapes to his yeah. version of reality. And that's, I mean, I think, I think that's what Rubens is doing. That's what it seems like he's doing because his proportions are wacky. It seems like that. I am not a Rubens expert. There are a lot, I mean, Rubens is one of the most studied artists. I'm sure somebody knows the answer better than I do. But I think that you and I here and what Adam Miller has done has gen, it is, a, that is generally true from what I understand. That is how he works. It's not entirely from imagination. It's partially from life. But ultimately, the whole thing is subjected to his imaginative whims and not dependent on how things actually work in real life. Right. And the re and the result is that you get that Christ image with those contortions of forms mm -hmm. pulling up the, the figure. Now, one of the things that we should um, bring up in this moment is that, you know, you can hire Rubens to do works entirely done by Rubens. And we have images that are mature Rubens, not just Rubens in workshop. And I'm going to give you... You know, three examples that are the next three images. So here's one that's at the Getty. And this is, from what we understand, all Rubens in his mature stage. Okay, this leads to the other question that I uh, had forgotten about. Who's deciding? You said earlier that he could have from 50 to 300 people working under him. Who hires these people? Is it the patron that hires him for the project and then says, okay, now let's round up 50 more artists to help you with this project? Or does Rubens have a whole team of artists on call for whatever projects are coming up? Well, not all of those people are artists. It's a very good question. And it goes back to how the guild system worked at his time. So you have to imagine that there are different monopolies on each craft in the arts world. So there are people who are, you cannot, if you're Rubens, work with gold. Gold is done by the gold guild. You can't make your own panels. That's yeah, done what do you by mean you can't? Guild. You're just not allowed to or you're in. You're not allowed. What? You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to. So What, do they throw so you like, in jail say, if you do? Yeah, yeah, it's regulated and you have to be a certified gold um, guild member, right? And it's the same thing with being a painter. Um, and it's the same thing with working on tapestries. So... If you are, um, it's almost like having the A team. If you're, you've got one person who's a weapon specialist, one person who's a who's a a, a, a a specialist with surveillance, another person who's your driver, another person who specializes in this. So when you get Rubens, Rubens will say, "Okay, we're going to do a Catholic Church. And what we need is is we need tapestries, we need ceiling paintings, which means we're going to need people who can work in." Um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, um, not stucco. Fresco? Fresco. We need people who work in fresco. We need people who can make panels for us for the large altarpieces. We need people to do the gilding of all of these things. And we need people who can, um, we need people who can um, uh, get the color for us and who can, if you, like lapis lazuli is the most expensive pigment at this time. And if you grind it too much, you you ruin it. So you've got a guild that, that manages the color and the grinding of the pigments too. And so what Rubens has is he has a contract that he works with people and he'll say, okay, so you want this much money in, in, in uh, lapis lazuli, right? You want this much in these colors you want. So we're going to need this team. And that's my, you know, it's just work like working with a contract. You've got, you know, 
the uh, the lux option, you've got the middle of the road option, you've got the cheap option for this. And that's going to be this many people. So he's and a general got, contractor of art. Basically. And then he says, now, when it comes to the painted figures, um, you can have my assistants um, at the lower levels do this much painting, my journeymen do this much painting, and me do the finishing, or you can pay me to do all of it. And that'll be the Lux version of me doing all of it, right? And it would be in the contract. So the painting that we're looking at now of the depth of, of the lamentation over Christ was a Lux version. This was Rubens, from what we understand, doing the whole painting. He painted every part of this. And his assistant at this time, by the way, was Anthony Van Dyke, who was a oh. teenager when he started working with Rubens. And there are a lot of things that Van Dyke was such a good mimic of Rubens that we still don't know everything that Van Dyke did versus what Rubens did in those early years. Huh. But we believe that this work was done entirely by Rubens. And this is at the Getty in California. And, um, you know, he, this work would have been part of a series of the Stations of the Cross, most likely. Um, but it really goes to how good Rubens was at skin. I mean, this is dramatically over the top. These are the same skills that are made to, used to make women look a little more, um, you know, fluffy than, they, than, <laughs> than we think of them now. But look at the difference between the dead skin in his chest and that that musculature, and how beautiful the shading and control is of the values in his pecs, mm -hmm. especially where they meet in the middle. It's beautiful, right? And then look at go down his right arm and look at how he's made with that burnt umber that skin look dead. And then look at the, the shading of the skin off of the, uh, the red cloak that's shading his arm on the underside. Oh, right here, yeah. The reflected and, light. And um, that reflected light, refracted light. And, you know, and then all these people who are, um, you've, got the you've got Mary, his mother, who's looking almost dead herself. Yeah, why do you suppose and that is? Because this, this character is healthy. This character is healthy, and this one is. Well, why do you suppose she looks dead? I think it's because all the life has gone out of her because she's seen her son die. It's a it's, symbolic. It's him being it's him being dramatic again, right? Like a mm. mother who's on the edge of dying herself. Mm. But it, you look at how tightly packed these figures are. It's very dramatic. It's very I mean, this about as meditative as Ruben gets. Ruben's gets where the, the figures are pretty much still. And you see how good he is at anatomy, even though he's fudging some of it to be dramatic. It's still, you know, beautiful. Now look at the next image of a live Christ who's passing the keys to Peter. Mm -hmm. These figures look like, they're such exaggerations, those faces. They look like Disney. Claus. Yeah. And they, they kind of look like the seven dwarf kinds of figures. This has got to be Rubens with workshop. You think? I think the workshop is doing the faces of everybody but Christ. And I think Rubens has done the body and face of Christ. And you can see the real quality difference between Rubens and what it would have to have his workshop do the rest of it. 
Yeah. Because Christ is phenomenal, right? But the yeah, workshop. Christ is, Christ's face is beautiful. Yeah, that's strange. I don't know how back then they let work they out of their it. studios. I mean, I'm not saying this is bad work, but just based on the description of how things were to, you know, I've had people ask me or tell me that they'd be willing to help me with my paintings. And, uh, the problem is I would never be willing to let anyone help me with my painting until they could paint the way I can paint. And at that point they yeah. can make their own living. So why would they help me paint? Um, I mean, I realize it's a different time. The economy for an artist was so much different back then, but it's still just, yeah, it's just so hard to imagine that an artist would let something out of a studio made by his apprentices yeah. that wasn't to his level. Well, and part of it, I mean, it, it is something that's unimaginable today, but back then you have to think that if they're thinking of the idea as Rubens, and they're also not connoisseurs, a lot of people in the same way that we're connoisseurs. We notice these differences. They just notice the idea of it's Christ passing on the keys. It's a Rubens painting, good enough, right? It's it's mm -hmm. it doesn't. They're not they're not picking it apart in isolation the way that we are. Hmm. The next image is also I think, I think it's mostly Rubens, and it's one of his more famous pieces. This just goes to show like how exciting Rubens can be. He goes back to that Medusa, and. You know, he he probably hadn't seen a tiger. Sure a looks lion. like he had. Holy and moly. He'd probably seen the skins. Um, but he's I mean, dude, this is this is mostly imagination, right? This is mostly him being playful, dramatic Rubens. And it's it's such a wonderful thing to see that he can go from being someone who does that Christ in the other image that is pretty reflective of working with a model, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. That's enhanced to something that is an imaginative and dramatic and playful as an image like this. Um, he, you got to remember, he's a one-stop shop for palaces and for churches. And palaces and churches um have some of the same goals they want to attract crowds of people to their place as being an exciting place to be right mm -hmm. and and rubens is he's he's working with these wealthy people who are trying to show off to their friends how cool their home is this is this is the ultimate brag piece you know this is the ultimate uh, mm -hmm. you've got a rubens of you walk in and you're like, oh my gosh, this exotic hunting scene. And you talk about your own hunting stories because what do you do if you're wealthy? You hunt, right? Do you think it's possible that some of his patrons had hunted some of these animals and he did have some specimens available to him? Because I mean, look at the head on that he tiger. Had, I think he would have had a, maybe he would have had access to a real tiger. But Did I they have, have taxidermy back then? Ta yeah, he would have had access to a version of that, like hmm. a dead version of it. Yeah, it's incredible. Okay. This <laughs> next image, I don't know. I don't think you can get a side-by-side, -side, but it's one of my favorite things about him. We're going to talk a little bit about him being influenced and his influence. This is um, 
Rubens, which he painted in 1628 when he was visiting the King of Spain. Now, the King of Spain is a, has collected a lot of Titian's work, and Rubens loved Titian. So Rubens is delivering these Titian paintings as part of his travels that have been purchased from Titian, and Rubens makes his own copy of it. So the next image is Titian's. I've been doing Jeff's online mentorship program for about a year now, and it is awesome. Everything is online, super streamlined. If you can be there, I mean, you have the ability to talk to him once a week, and he can review your work and help you. If you can't be there, it's pre-recorded. You can go back and even re-watch things if you missed something during class or couldn't be there. So the online portion of it is almost better than real life because you can always go back to it, which is awesome. The demos are recorded. It's just like all available whenever you need it. And I'm a stay-at-home mom of four and my time is limited and it's also very interrupted. And so to be able to go back has been clutch for me. And you get to work with Jeff Hine, who's awesome. He's tough. The assignments are simple, but difficult. And they're difficult to make us all better. And he's able to give us these assignments, coach us through it, help us stay excited to progress. And so it's just been a great experience. I am so grateful that he has been willing to take time away from his own art to offer all of us to have it. So if you're thinking about doing it, it's amazing. To learn more about how you could have me as a personal mentor, check out the link to heinatelier.com in the show notes or video description. We've seen these two before in a previous podcast. Yeah, we've we? talked about. Yeah, it, right. And this is—is is this Satan? And it, does it he, is. Does Satan he have a? With is that a, a double? Tail. Is that a double snake tail or a branch and a snake tail? I think it's a it's a double or triple snake tail with branch and. <laughs> that is too yeah, it's creepy. a double snake tail, <laughs> and and so you've got you've got Rubens, who really admires Titian, who does his own version of it, right? And and this yeah. is Titian's version, and uh, it's almost like Rubens. Is, Rubens is 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 making it a little more three dimensional, a little more realistic, a little more, um, a little more. Um, uh, the the relationship is less wooden between the figures. Rubens has updated it, right? But going back to another podcast, go to the next image after the Titian. He's there painting with Velasquez, who's doing this kind of work. Mm. And then after, while Rubens is there, Velasquez starts doing the next image. My this gosh, kind of there were a lot of rock stars alive back then. <laughs> and so, so Rubens, who's 30 years the senior of Velasquez and a superstar, loves being with Velasquez and Velasquez we've talked about this in a previous podcast absorbs what Rubens has and does his own thing and it it catapults Velasquez to another level of multifigural confidence and grandiose subjects and he immediately goes to Italy after Rubens is there because Rubens encourages him to go so Rubens again isn't competitive 
right? Rubens is copying Titian, his hero, and then encouraging Velasquez, his pro his protege in some level, right, to do work. And then he leaves and Velasquez changes his entire world because of what Rubens teaches him. And then Rubens goes back to Antwerp and finds an 18-year-old phenom named Van Dyke. And this is what Van Dyke's doing when he's 18, 19 years old. Go to the next image. Mm. And Rubens hires Van Dyke to work with him as his assistant. This painting is in the Prado because when Rubens died, he had all of Van Dyke's early works in his own collection because he admired Van Dyke so much as a young teenage, as a teenager and in his 20s. And then when, when Rubens died, the King of Spain shows up with carts at Rubens' estate and says, everything that belonged to Rubens is now mine because I was his patron. And he kind of like just takes everything from Rubens' widow and uh, takes it back to Spain, which is why we've got all of these early Van Dykes in Spain. But um, it's kind of a, you know, a tragedy. It's a huge legal case at the time because um, the Van Dyke, uh, sorry, Rubens' widow um, basically says that the king of Spain stole it all. But, mm. but this, I mean, this is 18, 19-year-old Van Dyke. When he painted and, this? Yeah, when he painted this. That's when Van, how old Van Dyke was, when he did it. Holy crap. And it's, it's tall. It's like seven, eight feet tall. I mean, it's big. Jeez. And he starts working with Rubens and um, paints just like Rubens in the early years. Then, um, you know, here's, I found this post while we were talking. Go to the next image. This was uh, um, Ben Valentine, who I don't really know that well as an artist. But he talks, uh, he takes a number of, if, if anybody wants to look this up, there was a, a you know, a 30-year difference between Rembrandt and Rubens. Rubens was... 30 years older than Rembrandt and Rembrandt worshiped Rubens and um, even dressed like him hmm. and, and, uh, and, and imitated a lot of his early work. And the top image is Rembrandt early imitating Rubens technique, which is below. So if you look at the influence, I mean, we're just talking about you know, Velasquez in Spain, and then you've got Van Dyck, who then goes on and basically influences all of English painting and portraiture for the next two or 300 years. And then you've got Rembrandt, who's hugely influenced by Rubens. You know, I mean, these are, Rubens is, is really like the ground zero for the next hundred years of how you define yourself. You either define yourself as admiring him or a lot of people go against him even and want to do something totally different because they want to distinguish themselves as being the anti-Rubens, which we won't get into now. But it just, you know, it just shows that artists that we admire now admired Rubens at his time. I mm. want to um, end on a painting that I think to me is my favorite Rubens because of his story. So Rubens at the end of his life, near, near the end of his life, there's almost a total war between Spain, the Netherlands, and England. And Rubens was Catholic, but his family and friends were Protestant um, in many cases. And yeah, there, in his, there's this great um, 
anecdote from a book called Master of Shadows that's on Rubens. It's one of my favorite books ever on any artist. And um, in the book, they talk about how he was doing all this secret uh, uh, diplomatic work for the Duke of Buckingham, for the Duke of Orange, the Prince of Orange, and for the King of Spain, trying to bring everybody to a peaceful conclusion. And he writes in one of, he had this thing that he would write in guest books or in friends' books, Rubens did. He would draw a circle and then put a dot in the middle of it. And then he would write in Latin below it, Deus in medio omnia est. God is at the center of all things. Huh. And what was meant by that, according to the author of this book, was that Rubens believed that God was a moderate. God was able to work in a middle ground, and everybody could agree if they saw God's mind. They could find a middle ground together. And he truly believed and worked for peace. He was a real diplomat who believed that war could be ended if people could just get together. Hmm. So he sent on a diplomatic mission secretly by the Spanish and um, the Protestants to, the, to England. And he paints this for Charles I. And Charles I was a real collector. And Charles had been trying for years to try and get Rubens to paint something for him. But uh, Rubens was too busy. And so as a diplomatic gift, let me get a little emotional here. Um, Rubens paints Charles I fighting Minerva in his armor in the background and war and desolation and destruction on the right-hand side of the painting. Then he paints the king's children in the foreground on the right being offered the bounties of peace and calm. And it was Reuben saying, do you want war for your children or do you want peace for your children? This was uh. painting as a work of diplomacy. And, and I've got some images that show you the up closes right after. Dang, that's heavy. You can see the... Um, It's a big image. You can see a portrait of King Charles uh, the first looking over his shoulder at this peaceful, bountiful scene um, as he's in the middle of fighting a war. And it was an allegory. Rubens was saying, I am here to try and Hmm. create peace for your family. And, and the next image is his well, children. Look at his face. His I little... wonder if he intended to give an expression of regret almost. It's like, oh, crap. Here I am fighting a war and, and the alternative sits right next to me. I don't know. Maybe it I'm is... reading too much into it, but... I don't think you are. I And it, this the next image is of his children... And uh, it, it must have been a very powerful um, mm. 
a very powerful thing for Rubens to show up and give this image to the king um, or to paint it for him while he was there. Do you know how it was received? But it speaks, um, you know, he was, he stayed in England for a while. He ends up painting a major um, banqueting hall for the king, Whitehall, which is, it, it, which was just restored a few years ago in England. Um, and so you know, probably for a well while received. There, thought, it was very well received. I mean, Rubens was. It's hard to overstate. Um, Rubens, how he was as a figure. I mean, here he is. He's having artistic influence. He's having diplomatic influence over the fates of nations. Um. He's he's nurturing other artists as he's going along. He's combining the wisdom and of the ancients into his work with his compositions and subject matter. He's he's really like I don't know of any other figure in the history of art like him. Hmm. You know, he, he's yeah. he's just a he's a he's a force for good on all kinds of levels. And you may not like his aesthetic because, you know, the way that he paints isn't for everybody, mm -hmm. but you have to admire the, the, his ability to tell a story in his image, to combine um, the past and the present, to make things dynamic and interesting. Um, you may not like his aesthetic and that's okay. I don't think that everybody has to be a Rubens fan, but I think you, you can't help but be humbled by him. Man, that's so nice to hear this about him because, you know, I remember as a young artist feeling like because the media loves to portray the edgy artist, you know, uh, all the movies about artists of the 20th century and they're all drugged out, crazy, having millions yeah. of affairs and completely immoral, nutty people. And we've developed because that's entertaining this stereotype of what an artist is supposed to look like. Yeah. And frankly, in doing this podcast, that's not what I've seen. I've seen some unbelievable yeah. people. Um, most of not all the people I've interviewed have been unbelievable people, but it's refreshing in to see this is the case in history too, that that stereotype does not really hold up. Not always. I think you're right. You're, I think, I think for the most part, you're right. And, you know, he, he was a good man. He was a, he's, he's one of my heroes. Um, I, his art isn't always my favorite. Yeah, you know, mine either, not, but it's respectable and, and, for sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe my favorite thing that he's ever done is the, uh, the head of the Medusa, right? <laughs> it's a fun cool. piece, right? But you, you, and, and one of the other favorite things is that my favorite artist, Velasquez, he, Velasquez wouldn't have grown up to be the Velasquez that I love if it wasn't for Rubens, yeah. right? And and I know that some people really admire Rembrandt. Rembrandt wouldn't have been Rembrandt without Rubens. Mm -hmm. It's it's just, he's just one of those those artists who, we the history of the world, if somebody had a time machine and killed Rubens, we wouldn't have had the world that we're in now. He created much of the dynamic of, of the artists that followed and led to the 
you know, an artistic blooming. He was, there was a Rubens Renaissance hmm. that, that, uh, that affected everyone. And whether you liked him or not, you were reacting to him. Yeah, man, that's an interesting statement. Because I've always, I, until you just said that, I would have thought that Rubens had no influence over me. But I'm influenced by Rembrandt and Velasquez. And so without Rubens, I would have no influences. Yeah. Hmm. Or they would have been dramatically different, arguably. You know? Yeah, well, right. It's, right. Exactly. Yeah. He's Man. just, um, mm -hmm. he's just a, he's a great artist and, um, a great hero of, of, uh, of his time. And, um, if you ever get a chance to just see, even if you're looking at his weird eyes, which are in almost every major museum, you see like these, these, they're all the same size, almost these Oak panels that have five colors in them that he's making for his workshop to work into greater pieces, or you see something that's partially done by him in his studio, or you see, you know, a, a tapestry that's done by one of his cartoons. It's, there's a reason to be um, in awe of, of how broad his capabilities were and his influence was. Hmm. Remind was, me where was, this is. That's in, um, um, let me give you the exact church name. I'll look it up right now while we're talking. Um, because I would kill to see this in person. Uh, as you know, I'm doing the life of Christ in large scale and man, yeah. this is inspiring. Oh yeah. So it's in the, um, the cathedral of our lady, which is in Antwerp. And uh, it was um, the 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 work itself when it's fully opened is um, fifteen feet and two inches by twenty one feet wide. Fifteen feet tall. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Christ is probably six feet tall or close to it. Yeah. So it's the figures yep. are life size. This figure in the foreground is probably bigger than life. Wow. Yeah. Man, that's yeah. impressive. Well, I hope that your uh, your audience isn't bored of hearing about old masters. There are many more to Heck talk no, about. Man. Lucas was on my list for a long time. Heck no. These are some of my favorite episodes. So I've got to get you back next month, too. Thanks again, Micah. I'd love to do it. I know how busy you are with your gallery at Anthony's in Salt Lake. By the way, those who are listening, it's the premier gallery in salt lake city if you come to salt lake city to visit you've got to see anthony's antiques and fine art where uh micah resides but thank Thanks, you again Jeff. for uh for doing this it's really generous for you to take the time you're welcome it's a privilege appreciate appreciate the time thanks for tuning in to the undraped artist podcast if you enjoyed it subscribe and if you could leave a comment or review that really helps the channel Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.